0: You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. All right, how's everybody doing? We are glad that you're here. So when I was starting college, this is about 150 years ago. Uh, I really had no idea what to major in really because I was 18 and up until that moment my goal was pretty much to become a rock star by the time I was 21 and so I didn't think they were offering a degree like a bachelor's in heavy metal or anything like that so I had to kind of figure it out so I I went to the uh, I went to the guidance counselor made an appointment and I said look I'm I'm starting I don't really know what to major in what should I do so she leads me out of her office and into Uh, the school library and sits me down at a computer to take a test and answer some questions about myself. And this is, I mean, we're going back, but this is kind of an old, I don't even think this thing was running on Windows, Um, whatever the pre-Windows thing was, which I think were tablets of stone. Um, And then it had the dot matrix printer, if you remember that, the little dots. So that's, if those noises sound somewhat familiar, um and you're like hey you sound like the guy from police academy um wow thank you thank you for getting that reference anyway just as an aside so anyway so i'm taking this test and it's supposed to tell me with 99 this is what it said 99.9 percent accuracy it was going to tell me what i should devote my life to now here's a little bit of background one of the things uh if you've been around calvary you probably know this but Uh, If you're not, let me just fill you in real quick. Uh, I was not a good student in high school at all. I was on the five-year plan. Um, That's why I tell people being a senior was the best two years of my life. And um, now, so I took algebra in ninth grade uh, and failed it. And then they said, well, you just take it again in 10th grade. It was the same teacher, same portable, same hour. And I got the same grade, F. And so then I also took geometry that year, also in 10th grade, failed that as well. So we just had to regroup. So the guidance counselor called me in and said, look, Robert, this is, we're having, we got a problem. We're going to put you in a, cla- a class. They put me in a class that was simply called math. So I want you to understand the, the, the basic uh, lessons that were happening in there. And I walked in and I was like, whoa, I was not a great student, but I'm like, wow, these are all future criminals in here. I mean, this is like, wow. And so, anyway, or current criminals. Uh, so, I... Then they put me in this other class, because I need to take more, class, more math classes to graduate. So, they put me in this other class called Consumer Math. And this is where they put all the mutants uh, who can't do algebra or, you know, long division. Uh, and, and so, this is... Pretty much the most basic math you can teach while it still, it'd still be legal. And here's, and I'll give you an example. One day I walked in, my teacher's name was Mr. Randall, and he was such a cool guy. And um, he gave us these packets as we were walking in. And on the packets, front and back, it had three checks on it. Front and back, and it was three or four pages. And so um, he gave us a lesson that entire day, and we spent an entire week, a week, learning how to write a check. Now, I want you to think about your experience learning how to write a check. Some of you needed no training at all because you've received a check. And in receiving a check, you're like, oh, name the amount, write out the, you know what I mean? You just picked it up along the way because you're a person of above average intelligence. Some some of us, you got like kind of a five-minute tutorial. You're like, oh, what do I do here? Oh, this, this, and this. And whatever, it was done in five minutes and you've been able to take that life lesson with you through the rest of your life. The people in this class, one entire week. But, you know, when it said the date, people were like, yes, I'd love one. You know, it had this thing, sign, and they were writing Capricorn. You know, it was madness what was going on. So, that, in that class. So, anyway, back to my test. I'm 18. I'm in the library. I'm, on the, I'm, I'm answering questions about myself. And then, it, uh, you know, the dot matrix, it comes out. I rip it off, and then it tells me with 99.9% accuracy that I should become a mathematician, and I've never trusted computers since that day. Now, this is so frustrating because I think all of us, would we love the idea of taking a test so that it kind of figures it all out for us. Unfortunately, that's just not the way life works. Right, It's not that easy. There's some trial and error. There's some skills that we learn. There's some experiences that we pick up along the way. And hopefully as we grow and walk with God, there's some godly direction that he gives us about what we should be doing with our lives and how we should be investing our energy and our time. And, and, and listen, let me just tell you this, that as parents, sometimes we make it even more difficult for our kids. And one of the ways that we make it more difficult is that we tell our kids this line, right? We, we say, you know, You can be whatever you want to be. And uh, just FYI, uh, that's a lie. uh, Because you can't be whatever you want to be because you're not good at everything. I'm not good at everything. No matter how hard I try, I cannot be a ballerina. (laughs) And most of that is because the leotard is way too tight. And uh, the second thing is, and this is important, not just is it not true, but the second thing is, is that our job as parents is to know our kids so well that we can actually speak into their lives and clear some of the confusion so that they can begin to see their future clearly. And then the third thing is this, is that we need to train our kids in such a way so that they start operating out of a sense of calling and not just picking uh, out of a list of possible careers. And so, listen, Jesus is going to be talking to his disciples today, and we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus, as we get to this critical moment in the Gospel, he's talking to his disciples about how to find yourself, how to look at your future, how things are are going to be different, and as he talks to them about how to find themselves, I'm always interested that in, in our culture, when someone Is saying, well, I got to really find myself. Have you noticed this thing? Whenever someone decides they're going to find themselves, the first thing they do is abandon all responsibility. Right? The first thing I got to abandon all responsibility, and then that's how I'm going to find out what I'm supposed to do. And and Jesus is going to teach us something totally counterintuitive. He's going to show us that finding yourself isn't about abandoning commitment. It's actually found in embracing commitment. And while the culture says, abandon everything external so you can find yourself internally, Jesus is going to tell us, no, start internally, and then all the externals begin to fall into place. And so if you are a high school or college student, I'm so excited that you're here. I really believe this message is going to help you greatly. If you're raising a high school or college student, I'm glad you're here because this is going to help you as you speak into their lives. If you're in a place in your life where you're thinking about what's next, I, I believe that this message is going to help you. And if you're in this place, maybe you're in a place where it's like, no, I'm doing what I'm doing. And I'm just, I'm in the grind of it, right? I'm, I'm raising kids and I'm in my career and I'm doing kind of the same thing. And more and more in my life, do I resonate with the movie Groundhog Day? Uh, I, all I need is Sonny and Cher in the morning uh, in, on the radio to tell me for me to really feel like I'm living that. And listen, here's what it could be. It could be that you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And what you need is just a little bit of encouragement. And I believe that we're going to do that as well. So we're going to start where we left off in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 21. Here's what we read. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Then uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. If you pause there and give me your attention, we're going to look at three things about finding yourself. And the first is this, is that your future is subject to God's plan. Now, this is important for us to note from the beginning, because a lot of times what we want is not for us to be involved in God's plan. We want God to bless our plan. And that should not be the goal. Our goal should be to find out what God is doing and then how do we get in on that. And the more that we do that, the more that we see God's plan begin to unfold and manifest itself in our lives. And some of us, listen, we just kind of keep pushing our own thing and it's not working. And the dissonance between what God wants to do and our own will is making us miserable. And I want you to look at what happens in what we just read. Now, let me back up for a second. Uh, If you were with us last time, then you know this. If not, let me just give you the 10-second recap. Jesus takes his disciples to an area north in Israel called Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them, who do men say that I am? And after giving a few different answers, Peter stands up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And so, and then Jesus tells Peter, you didn't just come up with that. That was my heavenly father that was, gave you that piece of information. And now he's feeling pretty good about himself. He just had God speaking through him, right? Telling everybody, all his 11 buddies, he's the one who got the right answer. And, uh, and then Jesus starts talking about how he's going to suffer. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to die, and he's going to rise again. And Peter, feeling good about himself, he's like, whoa, Jesus, no, no, no. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not feeling this. I'm not vibing with this plan that you've got. And, and, and I want you to imagine with me the nerve of someone listening to Jesus talk about he's going to die, and the person's like, Lord, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't really like that plan. I've got this other idea. And Jesus, are you familiar with the phrase live in your best life now? That's what I'm thinking for you. I've also, I'm also thinking about this other phrase for you, YOLO. And then you can imagine Jesus like you only live once. Yeah, that one doesn't apply to me. And uh, and so now, but listen, it sounds crazy, but that's what Peter does. And and why does, was Peter Peter do this? Because He just confessed that Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus has agreed with him and that this is the person that all of Israel has been waiting for now for, you know, 1,500 years. And they believed, right? Culturally, they believed that the Messiah was gonna be a military figure who would throw off the Roman yoke and allow Israel to be free. And what Jesus is saying is that's not the kind of Messiah that I am. I'm not gonna destroy my enemies. I'm gonna die for them. And so... Peter is saying in all of this, he's saying, I don't think you understand the job description, so let me explain it to you, and that's why Jesus stops Peter halfway and is like, get behind me, Satan. Now, that's a pretty big swing. Right to go from being commended, hey, my heavenly Father has revealed this to you, to hey, you remind me of the devil, you know, uh, Peter. Um, That like only a husband could make a swing that big in such a short amount of time, right? Right, because a husband can do something so well, and then ruin it so quickly, right? And it's just, and if you've been married for any length of time, you know that to be the case. And so, but why does why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Which once again, I think we'd all agree is a little bit strong. But it's because that thinking isn't original with Peter. That thinking, take the easy way, instant gratification, do it your own way. This is what Satan offered to Jesus when he was tempted. And it's what we get offered every day when we have the opportunity to do God's will versus our own. Now listen, here's here's an important thing. Peter loved Jesus. Peter was a follower of Jesus. And truth be told, the counsel that he's giving Jesus really is well-meaning. It's just wrong. And I think it's important for us to recognize that just because someone is well meaning doesn't mean that they're giving us good counsel. And Jesus told Peter that he's looking at the situation simply from an earthly perspective. You're looking at it like a man, not looking at it from a godly perspective and seeing the whole field. And this is, and listen, whenever we are not operating in the spirit, we will always look at situations in ways that. Uh, benefit us or serve our own purposes, and any you see that happen with anyone, anybody who's not operating in spirit is looking at a situation. How's it going to ben- benefit them or their own uh, purposes? And we're not even listening to the direction that we're being given. So, a couple of years ago, my son and I uh, were throwing a frisbee around in our backyard, and uh, the frisbee fell into the pool. So I told him, "Zan, grab the you know the little pool." skimmer I don't really know what that's called but the little pool is the net thing grab the net thing and um and and scoop out the frisbee and and he's like dad what if I just jump into the pool and and get and get the frisbee and I'm like Xander please don't do that that is literally the last thing we need right now because you are fully clothed sneakers a hat the whole like we don't need that so he's like okay so he gets he and Livy Um, get the the pool net skimmer thing and they scoop the frisbee out and then once it's she thinks Xander's still holding it so she lets go of it and walks away well then Xander he lets go of it and now the whole thing is going into the pool and 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 I say Xan grab the handle before it sinks and he's like no worries I've got this dad and he jumps into the pool (laughs) fully clothed and he pulls the pool skimmer out and and I'm like dude what are you doing? Like, we're going somewhere soon. And he's like, oh, when you said grab it, I thought you meant jump into the pool. And I'm like, yeah, that's common. It's a common misconception in our culture. And, uh, and so, anyway, he gets out of the pool. He has um, the, the net thing in his hand. He puts it down. And, and I, boom. all right, sorry about that picking up boulders or something around here. And, and so I say to him, I say, Zan, where's the frisbee? And he's like, oh, I forgot it in the pool. He dives back into the pool and gets the frisbee and comes out. And, and, and this is why parents age in dog years. You ever meet someone that's like 60 and they never had kids? I mean, they look like they're 25. They're glowing, right? This is why. This is exactly why. And so, but I'm telling you, we, we do this exact same thing where we just try to talk God into the thing that we want to do, and then we just do it, and we're like, yeah, that's probably what God wanted me to do anyway. And then when it doesn't work out, we somehow find a way to blame God for not blessing something that he didn't even want us to be in the first place. I mean, that takes a level of skill. Now, let me explain this, and I think this, this is so important. In the, in, the, in the book of James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the leader in the early church, he wrote this incredible letter in the New Testament. Here, here's what it says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above, look at what he says. Wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of, good mercy, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. And there's several things that happen here that I think are important to know. But one of them, you see this, that this type of wisdom is not manipulative. So whenever someone tells us they they want us to do something and it's benefiting, our decision benefits them, we've just got to be careful because sometimes people are saying it and they're well-meaning and sometimes people are saying it because they're manipulators. I I can't tell you how many times when I was in college getting my undergrad, um, I I can't tell you how many times I heard guys um, in college talk, walk up to a girl and say, hey, um, you know, I, I just want you to know I've been praying and God spoke to me and told me that we're supposed to be married. And I'm telling you, if I had a nickel for every time, I mean, I'd have at least $2. Um, And and so, which by the way, and I just, you know, and most of the time it didn't work. And um, it's just a, a terrible line to start with. Now, if you want a good line to start with, I'll give you a good line to start with, guaranteed to work. So here's what you do, all right? Here's what you do. First, start with having your Bible in your hand, all right? You walk up to the girl that you like. And you say, hey, um, wow, I was, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been reading the book of Numbers, and, uh, and I realize that I don't have yours. <laughs> Boom. That's it. By the ring! It's over! You're there! And so, and there's no stopping, a man who can start there, there's no stopping him. And, uh, and so, anyway, my son, I, I trained him recently on that, and, uh, and I also... Trained my daughters on the counterattack to that. So, anyway, the point is, is that a lot of training going on at at my house. uh, Some of it involving weapons, and uh, so. (laughs) But listen, the problem is, we do a lot of this stuff to ourselves, and that is, we try to do what we want, and then try to sanitize it by saying, "Well, yeah, you know, I'm sure God will bless it." No, no, no. How about this? If we will slow down, if we will slow down and pray and ask God to reveal his will to us, listen, it will go so much better for you uh, if you're responding to what God wants you to do rather than, than simply trying to do what you want and then try to get God to bless it. So Jesus, starting with this, he goes on, he starts, as he talks to Peter, then he turns to all of his disciples and he says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. If you pause there and give me your attention. First thing, when we talk about finding yourself, is that your future is subject to God's plan. The second thing is, is that your future is determined by your commitments. What does it mean when Jesus says to take up your cross? It's become a phrase that we use in our culture that um, it's just some kind of difficulty that we have, right? So let me, let me give you an example. My wife and I are very happily married and uh, we've been happily married for the last 25 years. And uh, th- uh, thank you, I appreciate that. And, um, and truth be told, we really, we don't argue that much. I mean, we have things we disagree about, but like, you know, like the big blowout, I mean, that's just not really something that, that we do, but um, it was probably about eight or nine years ago that something came into our lives that became a lightning rod in our relationship it was an elliptical machine. And my wife could not agree uh, where to put this thing. I wanted it in the garage. She wanted it in our bedroom. So I laid out all the reasons as to why the elliptical machine only makes sense in the universe. If it's in the garage, she disagreed. So we compromised and it was in our bedroom. And, um, And so I used to have this sarcastic side that would, that would come out. And so one time, um, my dad came over and I wanted to show him this picture of our, and that it was in our bedroom of our kids with him. And so he comes in and he says, Hey, I, I didn't know you had an elliptical machine. And, and I said, yes, it watches over us while we sleep. And, um, because it was on my, it's not just that it was in our bedroom. It was on my side of the bed, like four feet from the bed. I mean, it was like, it was, it just, I felt very uncomfortable. It's just like the thing was right there. And so, so I said, yes, it watches over us while we sleep. And that did not end well for me. And, um, and, and so, you know, if, if Carrie and I haven't, you know, disagreed about something, all I really need to say is the word elliptical, and it's on. And, uh, and, and so now, and you might say, well, Pastor Bob, you're talking about the elliptical machine right now. Is that gonna be a problem for you? Yes, it is. But I'm taking one for the team. For you to make my point. Now, we actually moved a couple years ago or almost two years ago and um, we, she finally agreed that having it in the garage is the right place. But I cannot even like, like you see, I was right, but <laughs> I can't even talk about it. She's like, you know, it's in the garage. I'm like, really? Should it be? You know, I just got to, I have to back up so far from that. I can't even touch it. And so, because if I push it, um, it will end up in our room, and I will end up in the garage. And, uh, and, and, and there's no AC in there, and I can't live like that. And so, anyway, now, um, and, and this is where people be like, well, you know, the elliptical machine is just your cross to bear. And then they tell Carrie, you know, Bob is just your cross to bear, you know. And uh, I thought that was a little funnier. Okay, whatever. 10 a.m. got it. Just no offense. 10 a.m. got it. They loved it. I also made this other joke that they didn't get, and I cut because they don't understand church history. So I'm like, you know what? It's not funny if you don't get it. I, it's not funny if I have to explain it, so I just cut it. So anyway, but <laughs> taking up your cross is about self-denial. Jesus' disciples would have understood that because crucifixions were happening all the time in Israel because they were happening all the time in the Roman Empire. Uh, crucifixions were very public. They, they, didn't, they weren't done in, you know, this back alley somewhere. No, no, no. Crucifixions were public. They happened at the public squares as a deterrent and a reminder as to what happens when you mess with the most powerful empire in the world. And so Jesus is telling his followers that following him requires a self-denial and trusting him rather than trusting our own wisdom or simply our own ideas. And that's why he says something that is so counterintuitive to our culture. He says, if you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. The problem is our culture is just the opposite. The, to find your life is to make yourself the topic of everything. And we know this more um, that like our culture has done this with everything, that we make ourselves the topic. We make ourselves the focus. And, and if there is any other invention that could describe this better, there isn't one. But the, the selfie stick, I think, has proven to us just how self-obsessed we are as a culture. Because we can't even fathom the idea of taking a picture that we ourselves are not in. And it's like, but I'm the only one here. I can't take a picture of myself. But now you can because I have this metal pipe that I connect to my phone that now, and imagine, you know what's weird? You ever watch people taking selfies? Because maybe you look fine in the picture, but I have this weird fascination with watching people while the picture is being taken. And so I went out to lunch with my family, and there was this girl outside of um, this like exercise store or whatever, and she was, this other girl was, and she was like. And I'm just like, if you could only see how ridiculous and constipated you look. Um, It's just, it's so, sorry. It's just so, it's so absurd. So absurd. And and I'm telling you, because we have just gotten to the point where it's like, if I can't be in the picture, I don't even want to take the picture. It's just like, could you imagine showing someone like, oh, what is this? Oh, this is when I went to the Grand Canyon. Wow, that's a nice picture of the Grand Canyon. And then, But nobody's taken a picture of the Grand Canyon. They're like, you know what would make the Grand Canyon a little grander? My face at a slightly odd angle. You know, and, and it, it's, it's so absurd. And, and if you own one, listen, just throw it out. You don't need the ridicule in your life. Just throw it out, and we'll just pretend you never had one, all right? But here's the thing that happens. When, when, what does it mean? When we talk about denying yourself and taking up your cross, what are we talking about? I mean, what does it mean? How do you do that in your career? It means doing good even when no one's looking. How do you deny yourself and take up your cross in, in your marriage? It means serving your spouse and putting your spouse above yourself, I mean, how do you take up your cross and follow Jesus in your finances? It means living and giving in a generous way. How does that work in our in church? It means that we don't just come to receive, but we also come to serve others as well. In our parenting, how do we deny ourselves and take up our cross? It means engaging with our kids even when we're tired. It means directing them towards the things of God even when it's hard and we don't want the conflict. It's like ah, man, I don't want to fight. No, no, no. That's the job we've been given. Sometimes there needs to be conflict so that we can direct our kids to do the right thing. And this is the counterintuitive idea that Jesus is saying, that when you decide to lose yourself and you decide to not put yourself first and give that up, you're actually gaining your life. This is the upside down way that the kingdom of God works. This is the same way those who lose their life find it. It's the same reason why Jesus says that those who are last are going to end up being first. And here's what I can tell you from personal experience that I know it sounds crazy, but if you will do what Jesus is saying, there is more joy in it than you could possibly dream of. In marriage, when two people are putting the other person's needs first, your marriage will flourish. Your kids, they will flourish when you teach them to walk with God and not put other things first. And listen, let me just tell you that youth sports are great, but you can't let them get in the way of your kids walking with God. And let me just tell you that, like, yeah, but it's different. Let me just tell you the hundreds of conversations that I've had on the back end of youth sports is I've had countless parents who get involved in travel, baseball, or travel, whatever, and then uh, with their kids, and then they stop going to church. And then when they're like, okay, we're ready to go back, or something happens with the kids that they they make some mistake, and it's like, well, pastor, please call my son. Uh, He won't go to church, but he'll listen to you. It's like, no, he won't. If he wanted to listen to me, he would come to church because that's where I am every Sunday. But he's, but he's not. And, and, and the, the Yeah, but he'll listen to his pastor. Listen, if he doesn't want to come to church, I'm not his pastor and I'm barely yours. Because you haven't been here. And, and so if, if he's not going to listen to you, what makes you think he's going to listen to me? You know what I've never had? I've had that conversation hundreds of times. Let me tell you this conversation. Um, I've, I've never had this one where a parent keeps their kids in church and helps them grow. And then, the, then they call, the parent calls me and says, Pastor, I don't know what to do. My son refuses to play sports. I threw a ball at him. He won't even catch it. What do I do? You know, right? No, listen, we need to be wise. Listen, most likely, most likely, your child is not going to be a professional athlete. But they are going to have to live in this world. And what they need is to be in church, grow in their faith, and establish a foundation of knowing God that's going to serve them for the rest of their lives. I'm telling you, if you will do this, if you will deny yourself and take up your cross in your parenting, you know what's going to happen? Your life will flourish. As I mentioned, you know what happens in your finances when you decide to deny yourself, take up your cross? You flourish. Why? Because God blesses generous people. When you're generous, you're showing God that you can be trusted with more and that you're not going to consume it all for yourself. That's why you ever notice that people that are blessed just keep getting blessed? I mean, how is that? Let me tell you what happens in your career. It flourishes because everybody works when the boss is around, but a person of integrity who works when no one's looking, that person is a treasure. And listen, I'm telling you this because everything that I have just said is completely countercultural. And you can say you disagree. That's fine. But just realize this. If you say, well, I disagree with that, then you are not inf- letting the Bible inform how you view the world. You've got a worldview that has been informed through some other means. And maybe it's the cultures informing what your worldview is. And, and let me just, so, I mean, how's the culture doing? They're not doing well. The culture that we live in right now is the most depressed, anxious, medicated, angry, narcissistic, and suicidal as they have ever been. They are gaining the world and losing their soul. They're trying to keep their lives and they're losing it in the process. It's not ending well. And we can go that way and we already know how that story ends. Or we can do it the Jesus way and we could have more joy than we thought possible. Well, at the end of this chapter, this last verse should probably be the first verse of chapter 17 because it correlates to that. But he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not, shall not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom and that's fulfilled here in the next verse where he says now after six days jesus took peter james and john his brother and led him up on a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light and behold moses and elijah appeared to them talking with him and then peter answered and said to jesus lord it's good for us to be here If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright light overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell no one, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I want to tell you, and that is that your future is empowered by God's revelation. Now, there's a lot happening here, and truth is, we could probably spend a couple of messages talking about it, about all the implications of the transfiguration, but it's important to note that Jesus has been talking about his death and says, Some are standing here who are going to see. The Son of Man and His glory. And then He takes Peter, James, and John to this high mountain, which is probably uh, Mount Hermon uh, in north, northern Israel. And He gives them a glimpse of His power and majesty. And he's transfigured, the Greek word is metamorpho, we get our word metamorphosis, where they saw Jesus, the son of God, not just Jesus, the son of man. They saw his glory, they saw his power, they see Moses and Elijah in, in this whole situation, and Peter misunderstands what's happening. He sees Moses and Elijah and he thinks Jesus is revealing himself, he's setting up the kingdom of God right now, and, and Jesus is doing something else. Jesus is revealing to Peter, James, and John, this is who I am. This is how powerful I am because in about six months when I'm crucified, it won't be by accident. Instead, it will be the will of God so that all people can be saved. But this experience changed them and they never forgot it. And after the resurrection, they understood what Jesus was trying to do on that mountain with them. In fact, in uh, Peter's second letter, Peter talks about this experience, and he says this. You'll see it in verse 16. He says, For we did not follow uh, cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we, he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So here's the question. Why did Peter even bring this up? The transfiguration is so powerful, and he didn't do it just to flex that he was there and that that just makes him really special. He brings it up to show us that the way, this is how we find ourselves and make our way in this life. He says it like this in the next verse, in verse 19. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is saying, just like the transfiguration helped me understand the will of God when I was on the mountain and what Jesus was gonna do, you have the scriptures to help you do the same thing. And you can be sure that the scriptures are built on eyewitness testimony of what took place. Because Peter, Peter knew that this light that Jesus was revealing to Peter in, in, in the mountain in the same way, the same thing is true for us. When Jesus comes into your life, you do not have to wonder who you are anymore. That if you're a Christian, you are accepted and loved. As a child of God, listen, you don't have to go anywhere else to discover what your worth is, what your value is, or what your destiny is. And the beginning of this God does this ultimately, but the beginning of this is what parents are supposed to do. That parents would have a moment that they'd speak over their kids and pray a blessing over their kids and tell them, this is who you are. This is who you are. And this was the moment where parents would lay their hands on their kids and they would pray a blessing over them. And they would say this, as the people who know you best and love you most, we believe this is what God wants to do in your life. And You see this throughout the entire Bible. In the Jewish culture, this is called the patriarchal blessing. And I know that we live in a culture that doesn't like the phrase, the patriarchy. Well, too bad. I don't like the phrase, men who can get pregnant. But here we are. All right? So, um, but the idea is that the person or the people who knew you best and the people who loved you most would speak a blessing over you and give you clarity to understand who you are. So that your future and the future that God has for you would be a reflection of what God is already doing in you. And like I said, we see this throughout the Bible of fathers and parents giving blessings over sons and daughters and them turning out exactly the way that their dad had prayed over them. When when my dad was in the hospital uh, before he died, and uh, this is probably about a year and a half ago, um, I went to see him just about every day. And one day he called me in the morning and he asked if um, I could go see him that day. And, and I said yes. And so I got there and I said hi to everybody. And when, after I got there, he asked everyone to leave the room. And um, I thought it was because he wanted to talk about something. And my dad was um, always reading the Bible and, and just always thinking about theology. And, um, you know, he had a son who knows a little bit about that, and so he just felt like, um, I don't really need to read the commentaries. I just know my son's phone number, and so I just call him like, hey, I'm reading this. What does it mean? Well, it means this. All right, see you later, dude, and uh, so we would have those kind of conversations all the time, but I thought he just had a question, and um, and that he wanted me to pray for him, and so I, I prayed for him, and, and he said, well, thank you, Robert, but the, the reason that I, I called you um, is because today I want to pray for you, And uh, and so he asked me to Pull my chair closer to uh, the hospital bed, and he sat up, and he put his hands on my head, and he prayed a blessing over me, over my wife, and over my children, and um, and once again, I have I have no idea where um, he he got the words that he said, but it was everything that I had been thinking about, everything that I had been concerned about, everything that I, that I was that was in my heart, and it was so deeply personal. And meaningful and I just knew that this was God speaking to me through my dad and that's why it meant so much to me and um, and it meant so much to me and I was 47 years old when he did it I can only imagine what it would have meant if I was 15 16 17 Um, parents we need to do this for our kids this is why they, they need it so desperately um, and, and because this is what's going to clear the confusion that they that they can have, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and I don't really know who I am, and I'm not really sure where I'm going, I don't know what the future holds. And you can you can speak over them a blessing, and tell them that listen, as the people who know you best and the people who love you most, and as someone, as a family, we've been walking with God, and and here's here's what I believe God wants to say to you. It's it'll it'll be it's something that will change them. It will direct them, it'll change the entire trajectory of their lives if we'll if we'll do it. And here's what you might be thinking, like, Pastor, that sounds really good, and I'm glad that worked out for you. But what if my parents never gave me the blessing? What if they didn't know? What if what if they didn't care? What if they, they weren't around? Well, the Bible calls God the Father to the Fatherless. And if your parents didn't give you the blessing, then God will give you the blessing that your earthly parents never gave you. And what he wants to do, and if you will draw close to him, listen, he wants to speak words of life to you and direct you and lead you to become more than you are so that you can become everything that he wants you to be. Because God really does have a vision for your life, and it's a vision of hope and blessing and life and growth. It's a vision where he's speaking into your life and leading and working on you so then he can work through you and for you. You see, so you and I can become more than we are and become everything we were created to be, and you know why? Because God is for you, because he invites you to be part of his family so that you can experience his love for you so you can experience his forgiveness for you, so you can experience his grace for you, so you can experience his blessing for you and ultimately the future that he has for you. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you so much. Thank you that if you've placed godly parents in our lives, we're grateful, Lord. And God, if you haven't, and our story is a little different, then I pray that you would be the father to the fatherless and that you would speak to us in a way that is so deeply personal that we would know it's from you. And God, that it would lead us and direct us and change us for the rest of our lives until we see you face to face. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.